I'm Jim Irvin, and this is Here's One I Made Earlier, a regular conversation with songwriters about a key song in their repertoire. During the latter years of the 1960s and throughout the 1970s, my guest today, Tony McCauley, wrote and produced a long, possibly unequaled string of supremely tuneful, uncannily memorable pop songs that played a major role in the sound of their times. His chart toppers included Let the Heartaches Begin for Long John Baldry, Love Grows Where My Rosemary Goes with Edison Lighthouse, and David Soul's Don't Give Up On Us, plus smash hits for Marmalade, Pickety Witch, The Paper Dolls, Brotherhood of Man, The Fifth Dimension, The Drifters, The New Seekers, The Hollies, Scott Walker, Elvis Presley, Andy Williams and Donna Summer. But among his earliest hits were a trio for multiracial British soul group The Foundations, written in collaboration with Canadian songwriter John McLeod. Build Me Up, Buttercup, In the Bad Old Days, and the song that we'll be looking at in depth today, Baby, Now That I've Found You, a British number one, and Macaulay's first hit in November 1967. At the end of the 1970s, after helming half a dozen huge hits for David's soul, Tony McCauley, still in his early 30s, apparently retired from writing pop music and turned his attention to work for stage, screen and print. In the mid-90s, he became the author of a series of best-selling thriller novels and later the teacher of a highly regarded course in thriller writing at Brighton University. Still going strong, these days mostly writing musicals, Tony and his wife divide their time between homes in Brighton and Cocoa Beach, Florida. Hello, Tony. Welcome along. Hi. That introduction barely scratches the surface of your accomplishments. You, you've crammed <laughs> a lot in, haven't you? I don't know who this guy is, but uh, he, sounds, <laughs> he sounds pretty old. <laughs> you, yours is the very definition of what these days they call a portfolio career, where you're fruitfully pursuing many different disciplines. Would you describe yourself as restless, or is it more down to changing with the times and circumstance? Um, yes, I think that's a very good answer. I mean, if you're doing something professionally, you need to make some money at it. So uh, it's kind of useful if your uh, creative tastes fit with the uh, public appetite for art, you know, and you have to keep your finger on the pulse. So I have tried to change my uh, career as needs must. It's very hard to stay um, fashionable in pop music for more than a decade. That's In fact, that's a pretty long time. Yeah. And, of course, by the very nature of the music, there's new people coming up, and new is good. And also, if you're going to do other things like write novels or write for the theatre, you need to mature a bit. And it's not something you can come at when you're too young because you just haven't learnt enough. You haven't been beaten up by life enough to have any good ideas and have any decent reactions creatively. So um, it's, it's different things seem to fit best into different times. What were your earliest musical memories? I, um, my mother played the piano pretty well, and we, I grew up with an appetite of early musicals, Rodgers and Hammerstein and Lerner and Lowe and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And the first time I really started taking interest in pop music was with, with, uh, with Buddy Holly and the Everly Brothers and people of that sort. I came to it all, you know, all my friends have been into it uh, much earlier than I. I think I was at school, and Buddy Holly was killed in an air crash in 1958. And the whole class went quiet. I mean, uh, and the teacher couldn't get a word out of them. They were doing a five-minute silence for Buddy Holly. I didn't even know he was. So I started borrowing records off friends, and I thought he was incredible. 
Uh, I've often dreamed of, of what we would have turned out had we written together, because uh, I wrote with a lot of the great songwriters of my era, but obviously not him. But uh, he revolutionized pop music, and he created the two guitars, bass and drums, Beatles, Rolling Stones prototype, you know. And the only reason anybody, and I know the Stones and the Beatles knew everybody of that era, really ever got into pop bands was because you get girls. That's it. It, however, develops into something else because it's very addictive, and you start to learn some chords and listen to some music, and you, you know, you grow. I got a guitar, and a friend of mine taught me some basic chords. And um, the very first band I worked in, I, I formed the band, and then they threw me out of it, but made basically because I hadn't finished making the bass guitar I promised to make. And I was so upset, I saw, well, I'll be a band on my own. I'll write songs, I'll be a hit songwriter, and then they'll be sorry. <laughs> so my becoming a hit songwriter is purely a revenge tactic, really. So you were sort of 16 around the turn of the 60s, weren't you? So what, yeah. what was it like being a teenager then? Was it? I mean, people sort of romanticised that well, period, it, didn't they? I remember it was a very grey time, literally. All the colours men wore were grey and very subdued, and the women did not wear bright colours in those days. And, and walk, you walked down the street, it was a very grey experience. And after that, when uh, the, we had the 60s revolution and people walked around in bright colours and extraordinary hairstyles and things. It's as though uh, it was like a, literally like a renaissance, like a renascimento. It's like that bit in um, Wizard of Oz, isn't it, where she steps into, into Oz and it turns into that. <laughs> yes, yeah, an Oz colour. moment. Yes, <laughs> yeah. that's exactly right. Well put. So you got your first job uh, in the music business with, with Essex Music. How did that happen? Well, I, um, I got it a month before my 21st birthday. I'd finished this engineering course that my mother wanted me to take, of which I had no aptitude. The only thing I ever designed was a water tire in uh, Chelmsford that blew over in a storm and killed a cow. <laughs> in fact, the fact that I didn't become a, a civil engineer has saved tens of thousands of lives. Oh, that's incredible. I, things would have fallen down and killed people had I... My mind was always on pop music. So, um, Actually, my mind was always on theatre, and I think I, cut, I think I changed my taste into something that seemed more practical. And uh, so that's why I got involved with pop music. So going back to your first job, how did that come about? You left engineering. I was I used to go up to Denmark Street where all the music publishers had their offices and I would pester one particular publisher into making some demos. And he actually phoned me up at work and asked me to go up there. I thought, this is it. He said, no, we're not interested in your songs, really. He said, but you're such a pest. We thought you'd make a good promotion, man. I didn't even know what that was. Uh, I know I turned. I know I walked all the way from Earl's Court to to Charing Cross Road, which is the bloody long way. On the first day, I got up four hours early or something. I was so excited. I found out being a promotion man was just going around the BBC trying to get them to play records that I didn't really believe in. <laughs> but as we had the Stones and the Who as two of the acts, it wasn't that hard. It did have a huge advantage because when I became a record producer, I was about the only one that knew all the BBC producers. And so if one was holding out and didn't want to play a song, you know, I could ring him up and take him to lunch or her, whoever it was. But I only wanted to be a record producer. And in those days, there were only about 12 record producers in the whole industry. Each record company, of which there were four, had about three. And then there were two independents. Um, Mickey Mouse was one and Andrew Oldham. And uh, so I blagged my way into a job at Pi Records, played some records that I'd made and some I hadn't lied about. That's what started it all. What were you writing then? What kind of things were you... Well, I, the first day I joined the business uh, in uh, March uh, 1965, I met John McLeod, who was a man of my father's generation. He'd been in ENSA through the wars and it, playing piano for the entertainment for the troops. 
And he was a remarkably good uh, orchestrator, or, uh, arranger, as you say, in the music business. And he had the whole sort of songwriting canon in his mind. I, I don't think he'd mind me saying that he wasn't the greatest composer at that point. I, and I really thought I knew what people wanted, but I don't think I had enough musical knowledge at the time, really, or experience to put it into practice. So the two of us were kind of good together because I had the energy and the youth and he had all the expertise. So we wrote a whole string of songs. Um, so he was sort of translating your ideas into onto the stave, was he? No, it was more than that. He added a great deal. I mean, and he taught me a huge amount of music. So after he played the piano pretty well. And at the end of each session, I asked him to show me how, you know, on the keyboard, where your fingers go, to put it in the crudest terms. Yeah. And then when he'd gone, I'd stay all night in the, in the office, often got locked in after the cleaners left and to sleep on the sofa and taught myself to play the piano. Before that, you'd be sort of playing bits on guitar, would you, and singing, yes. singing your ideas? I, also, I play the bass and the drums, but nothing like it. I used to play the bass pretty, pretty well. I'm a horrible drummer. So would, would these songs start with your ideas usually? Yeah, a good title was a, a, often a very strong launch pad for a song. Um, we, and if our secretary sort of put a date in for us to write, we would often... You know, say, I've got this title, think about this and think what you can do with this. That that really helped. And, we, of course, we all were record producers. We all had a stable of artists. So when you sat down and wrote with another songwriter who was also a record producer, whatever you wrote, it was brilliant or a piece of rubbish, it got recorded. It, the, the bad songs ended up as a, a B-sides or obscure album tracks, and the good songs, you know, were hits. And could you immediately tell the difference? Of the eight records that went to number one in England, I knew they were all hits. Oh, actually, that's not entirely true. It was just, uh, you won't find another fool like me for the Seekers. I couldn't understand how that was a hit. I never understood it. But uh, the rest of them, if it was, let's put it out and see what happens with the attitude, it was almost always a flop. Yeah. I tell you what did happen is that in those days, you used to record everything at one time, not the voice so much. The vocal was always put on afterwards, and usually the vocal backing. But the orchestra was recorded in one go with the strings, the brass, the whole works. And I would know, once we hit the first chorus, I would know then. And the difficulty was, when, especially when I was young, is hiding my disappointment when a song went down in the studio, is what we used to say. And I used to come in with this high hopes, and it hit the cor first chorus, and I thought, no, that's a piece of rubbish. <laughs> But then it, often when it hit the first chorus, I would be like a lunatic around the studio, full of adrenaline and youthful enthusiasm, because I knew I was sitting on a monster hit, you know, even with me singing it. Well, I immediately set out to make a, a strong relationship with, with the pluggers who identify with me because they knew that I knew all the producers they knew. And so I spent a lot of time hanging out with them, drinking with them, getting them enthusiastic over my, other song, over my songs. But I wrote more dance-orientated music at that point. Um, and that was that was kind of important. And songs that were sort of had any kind of ballad quality, and he struggled usually. Where did that come from? The sort of soul aspect of of your early hits. Well, it's very easy to tell you that because the two people, two songwriting groups, I absolutely idolised were Burt Bacharach and Hal David, and Holland Dozier Holland. And if you look at some of my early hits, I've taken the lyrical qualities. I hope of Bacharach and shoved them over the rhythm and beat of, of Hollandosia Holland to get the best of both worlds. And so I, in my early stuff, it's heavily influenced by them. Did you have a kind of plan when you went into the job? Did you know exactly what you wanted to achieve in that role? Did I? Hell, 
Uh, I first of all, I'd lost all confidence in my own songs because there was nobody, nobody thought they were hits. Even though a number of the songs that they were played as demos turned out to be big hits later. So I was recording other people's songs, and about six months of my career, about my first contract had gone. So out of desperation, I started recording my own songs. Yes, and what was the expectation of Pi, do you think? Well, why do you think they picked up on you? What did they want you to bring I, in? Um, I made a record called When I Reached the Top by the West Coast Delegation, who was, who was me and two other people, you know, who'd never been near the West Coast of America in our lives. And John and I had experimented with over, overdubbing, because in those days, there was most, uh, only, only the big studios had four-track recording. And in those days, you jumped from tape to tape, you know. Les Paul style. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, John was able to write the vocal parts out incredibly accurately and, and, and instruct singers to sing well, which is something I had no experience of. So we got in um, the people from Carter Lewis and we layered these vocals on so they sounded incredibly thick and fruity, like the Four Seasons. And I made this very, very, very... Uh, I listened to it today and it's like a jump ahead in terms of the records I was producing it. And I played that record to Cyril Stapleton, who was head of uh, A&R, Artist and Repertoire, at Pi Records. And he thought that was a very well-made record. And I really got the job on the strength of that. There were all record producers, about four. Uh, we all had tiny little offices. and It was all like the studio system in Hollywood. You had an office, a desk, which had, my desk had an extremely rude word carved into the top of it in huge letters with reference to Louis Benjamin. And I had to get lots, I had to get a big blotter to cover it up. And it had a very battered piano and a chair. And I asked for a carpet and was told to go, you know. Uh, so I paid my own carpet. And, of course, it was, they had their own studios. Once I became successful, I could do what I wanted, more or less, and he, book huge orchestras and had the time of my life. On the downside, of course, I was on a salary about £40 a week, expenses, no percentage. And I was having these monster, big hits in America all over the world and was making nothing out of it other than the songwriting royalties. And so I'd have stayed on there if they'd pay me a decent percentage, but they, they, they pay me a quarter of a percent after recoupment of costs or something. Tony's first success with Pie Records, released in the late summer of 1967, was the debut single for The Foundations, a nine-piece British soul troupe whose members had roots in British jazz and big bands and came from England, Ireland, the West Indies and Sri Lanka, a remarkable, almost provocative mix for the day. The Motown-flavoured Baby Now That I Found You climbed to number one in the UK and Canada and was a major hit in the USA, Australia, New Zealand, Ireland, the Netherlands and South Africa and has since reappeared in many films and TV shows representing the exuberance of that time. The song then turned up 28 years later radically reimagined by Alison Krauss and her band Union Station as the title track of an American chart-topping country album. So how did you come to meet and work with the foundations well it, the fact that a record even got made is beyond belief uh, i'll tell you the story as quickly as i can the fact that it was a hit is even more extraordinary in fact the fact that that launched my career i mean there are so many variables in that story but briefly speaking it starts with me getting a phone call saturday morning and i've got and i used to drink a heck of a lot we all did everyone you know uh, you were in the pub drinking if you to celebrate a hit and in the pub drinking it to mourn a flop there was virtually no difference and i woke up with a stinking hangover and picked the phone up and a voice said 
you're meant to be here at the studio. You booked this band in for an audition. And I thought, I have? I don't even remember a group called. I don't know who are they. So I thought he must be right. I turned up and apparently I had met somebody somewhere and said, and he even mentioned the day. Why? I don't know. Thank God the studio was empty on a Saturday. So I took this band in. And all I can remember, I thought they were very loud. And all I can remember was just want this over so I can take some more aspirin in those days. So I spoke to John McLeod, who really I hadn't seen for about six months. And he said, what about that song we did, you know, one of the first things we ever wrote a couple of years ago? And it was really a totally unfinished song. It had a chorus with just one set of words that went round and round. And it had a very makeshift verse with some very makeshift lyrics and only one verse at that. Anyway, really because I couldn't talk my way out of this, I ended up in the, a room above a pub. Uh, it was a room where Karl Marx wrote this part of Des Capital, I believe. <laughs> and we got the band in and uh, we rehearsed this song. I remember thinking, it needs more lyrics. It just goes around the same bloody thing. And I was so sure that nothing would ever happen with it that I didn't even bother to finish it off properly. Anyway, when we got to the studio, it turned out the bass player, whose fingers were all over the place, looking very impressive, and it was a complicated, moving, Motown-type bass line, was playing nonsense. And then I had to get a bass player in uh, to play the part that he hadn't played. And then I got the singer in, and he just, very high key, much too high for him, really. And he couldn't get the line before the chorus together. And, Darling, I just can't let you. He couldn't get that. So I just gave up with the whole thing. So I went to Les Cox, who was general manager of the company. He said, I've spent all this money on this track and I, I can't finish it. He said, well, make it a vocal backing line. So I spoke to John. I said, maybe we can add some other lines. So he worked out a whole uh, contrapuntal line, you know, da 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 I want to tell you, do and all this stuff. We went on a Saturday morning and we got these guys in and, they, and it suddenly came to life when we added the vocal backing. So as we mixed it down, we did hand claps. And that's funny because in order to get four hand claps, it actually, nobody realizes this, but you get a much tighter sound if you slap your own thighs. So two of us both hitting our thighs is four very tight hand claps. So there we were in the studio with our trousers rolled up. So we did several takes, after which our legs were absolutely bright red. So we went to the pub, and I said, you know, I think that sounds like a hit. And he said, I think, it, I think it does. And we played it to everybody, and everybody thought it was good. Put it out, and it just died a death. And so that was the end of that. Then the pirate radio stations were closed down. And the same week, Radio 1 began and Pi gave a reception for all the DJs and one of them was Tony Blackburn. I, ca I can't remember. Somebody said it was the 16th record ever played on Radio 1. What had happened was is they were told to go back through the last three months of records and see if they could find records that had slipped through the cracks so they didn't have to play everything the Pirates had been playing to give them something fresh to hear. Do you understand? Yeah. And he picked that out of the pile and, and started playing it on a regular basis and Within a week or two, it was, came into, got into the charts, and then it went to number one. At the people concerned are no longer with us. I'll tell you, I'll tell you one story. It's absolutely true. I've never told anybody. I got a, a message from Louis Benjamin to go up to his office. I thought, well, everyone was excited about the record. And I was called to his office, and he said, that band you had in a few weeks ago, they stole all the mics from the studio. 
And I don't want to go to the police because we believe in the record. If you I, if you tell them to bring all the to put all the mics in a bag and leave it at reception, we'll say no more about it. I, I came away. I thought, how could he possibly think that? So I rang up the manager. An hour later, all the about twenty mics were in a bag by the front door. <laughs> it was very unusual then, wasn't it, to have a sort of multiracial group? It was the black side of it that interested me because I was trying to pioneer black music in England, which Motown hadn't been going that long because of the 60s revolution. You know, it was white English pop bands, still the big thing. Yeah. Well, that was kind of coming to the end by 67 there. Soul music and then the Motown that the pirates were had been playing a lot was very important at that point, wasn't it? It was a big year for Motown with the Four Tops and Temptations. Um, the most important thing about the Motown thing was that it took very strong melody lines and put them across R&B and what was later called disco rhythm, you know, dance-orientated rhythms. It was formulaic in the best possible way so that you didn't have to know who the artist was. If they were unknown, it really didn't matter because the there was imprimatura on the, the actual tracks instantly there were motown did you attempt to copy that sound at all when you were making yeah like hell absolutely i mean the baby now that found you was meant to be a, the four tops in my head we drank in the par- pub opposite high records especially on a friday night and i was in the pub and had an awful lot to drink standing at the bar and this diminutive uh black gentleman and two minders turned up and said i'm looking for tony mccauley i said well you found him he said, I, I'm with Motown, and I'm really interested in, you know, we'd love to sign you up. I said, who are you? He said, I'm Barry Gordy Jr. So I said, well, unfortunately, I'm signed up for nine further years, which I was. Can you imagine such a thing now? No percentage, you know. Anyway, so I went back to the so on Monday morning. I said, you never turned up. Barry Gordy's son came to spy me. I said, well, I've never heard of the son. You know, if he wants to find me, if he wants to talk to me, he should speak to me himself. And his secretary said, Barry Gordy is Barry Gordy Jr. His father works in the production line of, of General Motors or something. He's 70. That's him. He came to find you in the pub, Tony, and you're rude to him. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was kind of funny. But uh, I met him again years later. I never didn't mention that story. I, and whether he didn't mention it either intentionally, I don't know. So when was that exactly, when this uh, was being was, a hit? Uh, no, a bit later, about, about, about a cup time, uh, a year or so, a year later. I wonder how different the, your world and the world of pop would have been if you'd ended up at Motown. <laughs> yeah, well, I've had some marvellous artists to work with. But, but also, you know, all these studio system companies were sweatshops, you know, they paid you nothing. Uh, the, the accounting systems were extremely creative. So I don't know that I'd have flourished emotionally there. Well, and that would have been ex- almost exactly the time that Holland Dozier Holland left, wouldn't it? So that's well, probably they, what he was Well, all their royalties to... were being sub-sub-published. They were being ripped off royally. We all were. Well, come back to your tussles with the publishers uh, in, in a moment. Just talk a little bit more about the song itself. It was only kind of half written when you went in to, to do it. Is that one of the reasons why it begins with the chorus twice? Yes, because called laziness i was still developing my songwriting technique at this point and, and i hadn't realized we wrote an eight bar chorus it was kind of good if you're going to repeat it then to have different you know marginally different words so that was inexperienced as much as anything to me the melody drive melody is 80 percent of the song you can have a, a real abc moon in june lyric to a great tune and have a monster hit uh, it doesn't work the other way around 
the first thing you've got was the first four bars of the chorus and the magic of those notes passing over that particular chord sequence was what got you. And you'd have a dummy lyric uh, to get the melody into your head. So then you decide the shape of the chorus. You know, the chorus could be anywhere from eight to 16 bars with a certain number of repeats within it. Our calculation used to be you need to hear the melody six times in a song minimum for it to be a hit, and ideally more. So if, if the melody was shorter, you could repeat it more often. And then the big decision would be, does this chorus begin the song, or do we have a verse in front of it? And the thinking behind that was always much the same. If it was a new artist, we were always very scared of starting the song with a verse, because we thought people might get bored waiting for the chorus and just take the record off. Whereas if you started with the chorus, you got the best bit first. So you only get one chance to make a first impression. So we used to hit them hard over the head with the chorus at the beginning. Also, I spent quite a bit of time driving up and down the uh, M1 and sitting in ca cafes watching people play my records on jukeboxes. And you learn a lot. And I always noticed with the Four Seasons and the Beatles and Stones record, the, a guitar riff or an intro was as important often as anything else because people would immediately say, oh, here comes that song I like. And I'd mess around for hours on the guitar or the piano, trying to come up with licks and phrases. Uh, one of the most seminal records ever made, if you ask McCartney or anybody about it, they'll tell you the same, was Pretty Woman by Roy Orbison, with, with that guitar riff at the front. The, both the Stones and the Beatles hooked onto that hugely. So then you would write a verse, and one of the great things we hit on, and Baby Now That I Found You, it was absolute ten plate in the sense that the chorus is the highest part of the song. So the first note you hear is the highest part. Baby! That's the highest part of the song. And we realised that to get the dynamics of the song right, the internal structure of the song right, the verse needed to be in a lower, more conversational range. Years later, when I met Clive Davis, who's the great guru of the record industry, uh, he used to say, hit songs have a conversational verse and an anthem-esque chorus. And that is absolutely correct. So you want the verse to be in a conversational range and tell the story. The chorus wants to be in the highest range, higher range of the song so it stands out and wants to have a, a less narrative lyric, more of an emotional lyric. So we worked to pretty tight formulas of different kinds. Each act had a different formula we worked to. And funnily enough, the template that you've described there is coming back today because of streaming and the way that people can just click off a song in within seconds uh, and go to another one uh, it's all front-loaded now it's all about the first two four five seconds of a song to keep people listening you know modern writers talk to me about that all the time that you have to start with the, your best noise and your highest note grab people straight away exactly when i studied you know talking to people around clubs you know i said why did you book that particular singer oh i said he hasn't any hits yeah but they love him up here they love to see him sweat all the great opera singers, people came to see hit those high notes. So you want the singer all the time in the highest possible range for the chorus. In pop music, you're looking for instant excitement. What did you do for the follow-up? The trouble was that let, Baby Now They Find Let The Heartaches Begin, which are songs we pulled out of a drawer we'd had for years. And when they were both number one, we hadn't written anything for, for a, a year. So we started writing again. This is and, you and John, yes? Yes, and uh, I think we had a couple of flops. And then we came up, then I did Build Me Up Buttercup with Mike Darb. Well, and then we Bad Old Days, which I particularly like. And uh, that had the Motown strings. That, that when the record, 
this old heart of mine came out. It has a, a sound in it, which is very new to pop music. And it begins with the violins playing ba 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 da ba 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 da ba. And that is a specific sound. It's called 8VA Mercato, if you know about music. It's violins in, in octaves bowing every note. Really playing more what brass would play. That's what's so interesting. And that really, I use that technique in so many hits, I can't tell you, on quite a few flops. What is so good about strings is they're very close to the human voice and their tonality. And you can be used them behind the voice and they make a chorus into an, and they give it an anthem-esque quality. The public aren't aware of it. It's one of the tricks of making records. It, it's not what you hear so much as what you feel. And it gives a great sense of occasion behind the vocal. It, it was uh, on uh, back on my feet again and any old time that was sort of slight flops, weren't they? Total flops, yeah. Did you have a theory about why, why that was? It just Crap songs. Uh, and Build Me Up Buttercup kind of goes back to the Baby Now That I Found You thing, doesn't it, starting with the chorus straight away? Well, it, it's a shuffle for a start. It's in swing feel. Mike Darbo, who I'd known since the first day I joined the business, he, he lived just around the corner. I went round for dinner with my girlfriend, and while the women were ladies were doing the meal in the kitchen, he said, I got the start of a song. By the time the meal came around, we'd written most of it. And uh, I was going to do it with the paper dolls, who were... Uh, I can't think of a polite way of describing them, but um, they had one hit with something here in my heart. A great record. I was going to do it then, but if you think about it, a girl calling a bloke buttercup is kind of strange. They turned it down, as did David Essex, who was also recording. And so I did it with the foundations, really, as a last resort. But I knew the minute I got the vocal on, uh, we did the vocal backing. I played the organ and put some other bits and pieces on there. I mean, that night... I. It took about three sessions to, to finish it. The pressures were huge. They used, often used to have a motorbike sitting outside waiting for me to finish it to take it to the factory to be pressed. Were there any other producers you were kind of listening to? Oh, yeah. To? Phil Spector, we all worshipped him. I mean, he, people know him now as a murderer. But he, he and George Martin invented the expression um, record producer. And uh, his sound, which I analysed intimately, that wall of sound, was just the greatest noise anyone had ever heard at that point in rock history, you know. I mean, the greatest session I was ever on is I was standing at the back, a nobody, uh, a gopher, on the session when Silver Black recorded Alfie with my two idols, George and Bacharach, together in the studio. He was in the studio. I've never seen anybody like it. I just dreamed of being him, you know. And I learned a lot from watching him and listening to him. Um, didn't he famously, I mean, he did many, many takes of that song, didn't he? Yeah, it kept on going. And then George said, he said, why are you doing all these takes? He said, I just want all the magic I can get. And George said, I think you've got all the magic you'll ever need on take three. So I went back and listened to take three, and he said, yeah, that's the one. And she, she wasn't at all as depicted in that TV series. For a start, she was five foot ten and pencil thin and very, very tough lady. But she was one of the most professional people I ever saw. And Scylla did every take perfectly, not a note wrong, live with the London Symphony Orchestra, you know. Unlike a great many artists, she came to the studio completely rehearsed and ready to go, you know, which is I'm afraid, rather unusual. Baby Now That I Found You was displaced from number one by your own production of <laughs> Let the Heart Eggs Begin. Yeah. Uh, an incredible achievement, as, as you said, to an outsider, but to you a bit annoying. Uh, <laughs> but it must have... 
been a great advert for your work. Did did things explode for you after that? Yeah, I mean, because we were writer producers, we could only move at the speed of our own writing, and that we. And everything was song-based, so we'd come up with a song like Something Here in My Heart, which was a hit in that era, which was kind of a Supremes rip-off in my head in terms of style. And it had a pedal note going through the bass all the time, which really intrigued me with baritone sax. And we just looked around for a girl group to do it. it very much how Phil Spector worked, too. He, he was, you know, he'd find a song and then look for someone to do it. And... Um, so and the same is true, really, when I left Pi and did uh, Love Grows. That was just a backing track with me singing it and really looking for an act to be Edison Lighthouse. I, I was always moved by a song and not an artist at that stage. How, when did the relationship with John come to an end? Was that when you left Pi? Or? Yes. Uh, he was in a vocal group uh, and they were doing gigs and things and he was not available to me at times when I needed him and everybody seemed to want me to write with him at that point. And I just signed this monumental contract with um, Bell Records, and and I just thought you needed something incredibly simple and easy to grasp and infectious, to, because I all my hit acts were with Pi, so I left with no acts. So I thought the song has got to be the art hit, not. And so it occurred to me maybe rather than having a verse of a song that was maybe eight, twelve bars long and a chorus of sixteen, why not? truncate all that and have a verse of four bars and a chorus of four bars such as she ain't got no money clothes are kind of funny hair is kind of wild and free end of verse beginning of chorus love grows that's the song so i went to the studio uh with five songs that i'd written uh, with no artist uh, making hugely expensive demos my demos were always you know totally over the top and i was too insecure to do them just with a piano and voice you know i always had the works so we went to the studio with this orchestra, and about 20 minutes to the, to the end of the session, we put Love Grows up. And I'd just come up with that riff, dong, 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 in the, when I was shaving. So I said <laughs> to the guy, could shout the notes out, scrap the intro. So the reason everybody's playing the same thing is because everybody played the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. just they had no music. They just had to remember dong, dong, I said, well, first you, you lot do it, then the brass comes in, the strings come in. And as we were leaving, there was a singer waiting to come into the studio after me, and he was playing something he'd just finished. And I said, uh, do you do sessions? He said, yep. I said, can you sing through your nose? He said, I said, I beg your pardon. So I said, I said she ain't got... He said, I held my nose and she ain't got no money, which is how he recorded it, of course. And that was Tony Barrows, and that was the record. You got a reputation at that point for the sort of being like the, the, the British pop factory, didn't you? Yeah, you know, Greenaway and I were churning them out of some rate. <laughs> but he was exactly the same as me. He he had no real interest in artists. He he loved the song and the track, and a vocal was just another instrument to him. He being Roger Greenaway. Well, they've been they've been songwriters of the year, and God knows what they were hugely successful before I even joined the business with David and Jonathan, and then they were bespoke songwriters for Fortunes and just about everybody. Yes, a bit, and then occasionally they'd be a, with, with them, like where Roger Cook was in Blue Mink, wasn't he? So they Blue Mink, he was whistling Jack Smith, the yeah. Pickens, whatever they were, <laughs> whoever they were that week. Yeah, I thought it was fun. See, artists turn not like it is today, and it's not like it is in theatre and movies, where people do three years at drama school, join the union, turn up professionally on time, ready to go. Most of the people are on a building site one week, and then the top of the pops the next. 
They had no training, no background. They were nightmares to work with. Most of them turned up late, never learnt the material, behaved abysmally when they were away from us, you know. Stealing the microphones. Well, we got sick of, sick of the uh, lack of professionalism. So we thought, I suppose subconsciously, or maybe even consciously, we thought, let's get rid of the bloody artists. Let's just make records and have some fun and make some money and screw the artists. So that's kind of what happened for about three years. We just, you know, and people said, there's no follow-up to, to Love Grows. I said, why should there be? I mean, I know, it's just a moment in time. I don't repeat myself. What did it feel like for when Baby hit in America? That must have been an incredible feeling. Unreal. There was no sense of reality to it at all. It wasn't me. It wasn't my song. It was just like, can't possibly be happening. Believe it or not, it was another two years before I went to the States because I just, I don't know anybody there. How, how do you even get there, you know? You can't imagine how different things were. It was only a few years before you had to stop in Newfoundland if you want to fly to America. And jumbo jets were a relatively new thing. We could go in one go, you know. I remember sort of at the time hearing that you'd fallen out with the band, with the foundations. Did that, was that true? <laughs> I, I left pie as a simple truth. That's it. But I wouldn't have done anything more with them anyway. They were impossible. And, and were they of the kind that had been on the building site one week and in the charts the next? I mean, was, it, was that the thing, that they just Absolutely. weren't quite pro? Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I just couldn't stand the amateurism of turning up late, not knowing the material, you know, doing songs line by line. And, but they were a nightmare. So what did you make of the reappearance of the song when um, Alison Krauss recorded it? I was flattered. I mean, I, I've... I have tried on various occasions. I've written with some of the best country writers. I'm just not that man. I mean, country music, it works on about five, six chords, you know, at the most. And I'm not that person. You know, I, I, I go wherever the tune takes me or wherever this... I don't want to be... There's only four topics in, in, in country music. is uh, drinking, cheating, drinking and cheating. <laughs> and trucking. And so uh, I was not into country music. And I was just pleased that she did the song. And that was the year I got uh, my, uh, um, the Jimmy Kennedy Award, the Lifetime Achievement Award. So that was kind of nice. Give me something fresh to go up on stage with, you know. They, they restructured it a bit, didn't they, in that, their, yeah. their version? I didn't love what? it. I was pleased they did it. I'm glad it was a hit, but I, I didn't love it. How do you regard the song as a piece of work, looking back on it? Could, could you have improved it? Well, as I told you, I'd have spent a bit more time written a second verse, written the second half of the chorus lyrically. It's quite an interesting song because it's a descending bass line in the left hand for eight bars, which just goes down in half steps. Also, the melody falls in quite unusual places and the intervals are interesting. And some nice modulations in it, which was quite daring at the time because my, all my songs are full of key changes. I think one song has 21 key changes in it. Um, what? <laughs> take, <laughs> Which song is that? A, a theatre song. Um, so I, I, there's things I like about it. The thing I like about it most is it's got a wonderful infectious party quality. We double track the piano, which is a very driving sound, played at the bass end. And it's got a very infectious quality. I like that. I like, I like the mood of it more than I like anything about it. Um, at what point did you have your... Uh, trouble with the publishers then was that straight away no but the time we, uh, after love grows i mean so that was about my third number one i started to realize i was getting thoroughly ripped off and when we looked into it all we found out it was standard industry practice and basically in a sentence it's called double dipping the publisher says to you 
will give you such a percentage. But if we this record goes out abroad, we have to then find a foreign publisher and give them another twenty another half. But in fact, what was really going on, that foreign publisher was also them. So they were um, behind the scenes taking double the amount they should be taking. When, and of course, the law requires you, it's a fiduciary arrangement, that you should do your best endeavours for your uh, contractee. And, that's, and of course, it's, it's, it's sharp practice. It's... it's Salaming up the royalties is what the, the appeal court judge said. About eighty percent of the publishers practiced this, so I was told I couldn't possibly win. But the, when we got into court, the judge said this is in, you know iniquitous, and there were clauses in there saying if the if the songwriter breaches this contract, his royalties should be ceased to be payable, and we're under no obligation to tell him he's breached it. That was one of the clauses. So that started the biggest court case in the history of British pop music. The only case that ever went to the House of Lords. And it, as a result, not only did all contracts in the music industry utterly change, but all service agreements, master and servant, 1806, uh, all that changed forever. So the longest contract can be in show business now is three years. There must be mutuality of obligation, which means that the contract E has as many clauses protecting them as the contract or. The publisher, who's now dead, threatened to have me killed. So I used to have a bodyguard for the month. That was nice. Gosh. So who was left for you to sign to then? That Nobody. I started my own publishing company and sold it a few years ago. Do you ever look at the um, comments on YouTube under any of your songs? No. <laughs> I wonder if I could read a few to you. Oh, God. I, I love looking at the the the, react, the sort of public relationship with the songs. His somewhat this was under the video of the foundation singing uh, "Baby Now That I Found You." Somebody called Chloe Doyle wrote, wrote three years ago. My dad would always sing this song to me as a baby. Same song was played at his funeral. R.I.P. Dad, gone but never forgotten. Well, one of the nicest things said of songwriters is that you're writing the soundtrack of people's lives. And, you know, um, a good many of one's songs tend to, you know, throw up images of people, you know, people, people's first date and all the things you've said, you know, momentous moments in your life. And um, so, yes, I, I, I think that's wonderful. I, I mean, I'm very flattered by anything like that. Coco Paul, four years ago, said, I was six when I pestered my mum to buy this record for me. I remember carrying it everywhere with me. I spilled porridge on it and cried as my mum tried to clean it off. I still have it now with the porridge stain still on the label. I'm 54 and that memory is still so clear. Well, it's a mucky business being a songwriter. I was started with a sewage engineer. That's what I was. I was designed sewage treatment plants. And, and, <laughs> and uh, later on, a, a, a critic who hated me said... Songwriter Tony McCauley used to design sewers. Instead of shoveling it, he's now writing it. Someone else wrote, this was nine years ago, man, you know you've written a great chorus when you start the song off with it and play it twice. The singer's voice cracks and is out of pitch in places and is absolutely wonderful. No studio effects can add soul to your voice and add to the joy of singing a truly rocking song. That's the world I grew up in and I miss it so much. Well, I think that is a shame, is that all vocals are put through vocoders or, or you know, uh, they control the pitch of them. And I, when we used to go, I mean, I could, every record, just about every record I ever made out of 38 top 20 hits, 
there's always the place somewhere I think, oops, there's that bad bass note, or where's that, there's that late drum fill, or whatever it is. And there was a huge, tremendous amount of human error in these things, and that's what makes them magic. You yeah. know, there's a sense of sweat and a sense of you're down in the bulb walk with it all, you know, and I think that's terribly uh, important. I think what singles out your songs is the the melodies are often surprising. They go places that you wouldn't expect the melody to go at that point. <laughs> nice thing to say. And I I do think that's a real uh, real uh, sign of a good craftsman, isn't it? Something that McCartney could do. The good mel- melodicists are quite rare, aren't they? Well, the thing you need to do. I've never taught songwriting. I keep my secrets to myself. But I mean, I think uh, you, when your song's finished, you should not have any instrument. Walk around the park with the dog and sing it to yourself. And make sure it's an organic structure. It doesn't need the chords underneath it to hold it all together. And so you've got to remember that you know. Some girl in those days working at Woolworths for, you know, 14 quid a week could absorb it at the first hearing. So, you know, you want to make records that people enjoy. Uh, and if you're clever about it, you can also put a, quite a lot of musical touches that give you a thrill. Nobody else knows you're doing it. Sort of towards the end of the 70s that you decided you, you were going to pull away from pop. Is that right? About 77... 70, I, I'd won just about everything there was to win. People were getting a bit tired of me. I, somebody came to me, Freddie Beanstock, who was the Motown publisher and Elvis's publisher, came to me and said, did I want to do a musical? And it was only a little musical in the East End. But he said, you can, you know, you've always talked about doing musicals. You, you can learn the, your chops. You learn you know, how to put that together. And that, of course, was invaluable. And then I was smitten with all that. And, that was, you know, and, and it was changed my life. So, and I started doing musicals, mainly in America, I have to say. I did Bill Met Buttercup, the musical, Sherlock in Love, um, and several others, several, and, and Windy City Time. Um, with varying degrees of success, but uh, some of the shows went on for dozens and dozens of productions. And, and live theatre, the biggest toy train set in the world, you know, the most exciting thing ever. The most fun I've ever had in my life has been connected with theatre. But I love the live risk. I love the fact, well, if... And as soon as the curtain goes up, I said, that's it. Whatever goes wrong is not my fault. Can't do anything about it. And usually it goes right, you know. And also, I only ever, out of this, I think I saw about 50, 50 million records, I was saying 52 million records. I only ever saw one person buy one in, in Ireland. I want to go up and put my arms around him. I thought it might hit me. But, but when you sit in the audience, you see the audience reaction. You think, God, they love that. They, they love that, but I don't. Why do they love that? Then you, then you think, a bit comes, you think they're going to, they're going to roar at this, and they don't. And you think they go back and think back to the drawing board. We've got to fix that bit because they don't like it. See, all the time you can refine it and learn and change and grow, uh, but you never get that second shot with a record. Thank you so much to Tony McCauley for joining me on this episode. For licensing reasons, we were unable to use his music in the show, but we've compiled a Spotify playlist featuring Baby Now That I Found You and many of Tony's hits. Just search on Spotify for Here's One I Made Earlier, Tony McCauley. And please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss our next conversation about a much-loved song. See you soon. Bye-bye.